Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Christopher Miller, who now serves as a Ukraine correspondent for the Financial Times, has been embedded in Ukraine for 12 years. He was there on the ground when the first Russian missile struck and troops stormed over the border in February 2022. Mr. Miller has written for a number of publications, including Politico and BuzzFeed News. He's been a correspondent for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in Kiev. And his new book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine, is published by Bloomsbury. It brings Christopher Miller to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Leonard. When you were a Peace Corps volunteer, weren't you hoping to get stationed somewhere on the African continent? How, how did you wind up being sent to the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut instead. <laughs> yeah, by fortunate accident. Uh, I, had, I had gone into a Peace Corps recruiter's office in, in Portland, Oregon, uh, where I'm from, and and uh, said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to spend a couple of years abroad. Um, I've heard some good things about this program. They asked me where I'd like to go and showed me a map uh, of the world that was split into eight very large um, uh, segments. And um, I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to go uh, here, someplace in sub-Saharan Africa, if it's possible. And they said, uh, yeah, that might be possible. But some, some months went by. And they uh, they gave me a call and said, "How about we send you to Eastern Europe instead?" And and I was open for an adventure abroad and didn't really mind. Um where I went. I, I didn't have any affinity to, to anywhere in Africa, and I, I certainly didn't at the time in, in Ukraine either. But um, it was an interesting enough place uh, for uh, for me to say yes to, and I agreed to go. And just a few weeks later, I ended up uh, in, uh, in Kiev, where I studied uh, Russian and a little bit of Ukrainian for a few months before being dispatched to the city of Bakhmut, just a few hours from Although the Russian it was border. Called, it was called Ar- Artemivsk. At the yeah. time, which is it was weird. So many of these places have more than one name. Yeah, yeah. And they have interesting stories behind them, too. You know, so uh, Bakhmut, which is what the city is called today, is the original historical name of this place that was actually founded way back in 1571. And uh, it was it was only named Artemovsk in uh, uh, at, the, at the start of the Soviet Union uh, when they named the city and, and, and several other cities across uh, the Union after uh, Soviet heroes and, and Bolshevik heroes. So Artyom, uh, or, or known by uh, the Bolsheviks as Comrade Artyom, was a close ally of, of uh, Joseph Stalin. And so they, they named uh, several cities and towns various versions of, of his name. Artyomovsk was what Bakhmut was renamed. There were several towns called Artyomovsky, Hmm. Um, and so forth and so on. Um, so when I arrived, it was called Artyomovsk. Well, you were just 25 years old at the time, and the, the town had been struck hard by the economic downturn following the collapse of the Soviet Union. But you say you became hooked on the place. Why? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was quiet. It was simple. Uh, nothing was was at least outwardly um, particularly complicated. It took it took a little while for me to figure out just how complicated and complex um, the the language and the culture and the politics were. But when I arrived there, you know, it, it was I found a very quiet um, city of of a little bit more than seventy thousand people. Um, I uh, you know I I, I felt uh, very much like an outsider for the first couple of months. I didn't speak Russian yet uh, very well, and that was the predominant language there. 
but it was, you know, essentially sink or swim. So I had to learn to do it or, or, or not. And so I sort of, uh, you know, forced myself, um, uh, to learn the language quickly. I got a couple of tutors. I was studying, uh, about five or six hours a day and then also assigned, uh, work at the central library. And I helped out the, uh, central government with some, um, development programs as well. And everybody, um, you know, very quickly welcomed me in and they were just as interested in this lone American who was living in this uh, far off place as I was in my new, um, uh, at the time, a little bit of a strange um, town. But it, it, it felt it felt like home very quickly. I think by the end of the summer, I, you know, had gotten to, to uh, know everybody in my apartment building on a first name basis. I had a favorite vendor at the market who sold me uh, produce. I had another one who sold me uh, uh, meat. I had another one for eggs. And, um, you know, everywhere I went, because I was the only American living in this small place, everybody knew me, even if I didn't know them. And I was invited into a lot of kitchens and homes. And it just, you know, became this really incredibly welcoming place um, that felt uh, at that point already like a second home. But can it get a little confusing? Many of the places and people's names have different spellings. President Zelensky's name is often spelled with two Y's at the end. Is that just when they're written in Western languages? Yeah, yes and no. Um, and yeah, then the capital, you know, the capital K-I-E-V and K-Y-I-V. <laughs> Yeah. So, well, at least in in, in the yeah. So the, these are these are uh, Russian and, and Ukrainian transliterations. So in in Russian, uh, we would say and we would write out uh, Kiev uh, as K I E V, and that was for for many years the accepted uh, English spelling of the capital. But there was a there, there has been a push by the Ukrainians to uh, after you know. Uh, after uh, 2014 and the revolution of dignity, uh, when they really made their their split uh, from from Moscow's sphere of influence, to adopt the Ukrainian transliteration for the name of their cities um, and and for uh, them personally, and so Zelensky's name with the double Y at the end uh, is is a Ukrainian transliterated version of of his name. But, but you, yes, you you, you write it with one Y. <laughs> I, you know, I, I do, I do. And that's, I, I think I, I, I still do that because, you know, if, if, um, if you're just a general reader, it might be difficult to understand why there are two Y's at the end of the name. Um, uh, yeah, I, I remember writing it with two Y's early on after I had started, started to cover him during his presidential campaign. And I think a lot of media very uh, early adopted the, the one Y policy because it just looked a bit it looked a bit odd to English readers. But that is part of the complexity of, of the Ukrainian language and, and, of course, also the Russian language. And then uh, I'll add one more uh, slightly confusing thing, or at least at the time when I when I arrived here, which is after studying Russian for several months and I arrived in, in eastern Ukraine, I found that a lot of people actually spoke Russian with a lot of Ukrainian uh, mixed in and with a different accent. And uh, this is something that was called Surzhik, which is a, a mix of the two languages. And it's very much more of an art than a than, than any sort of science. And, and uh, some people will speak it, um, uh, you know, 90 percent Russian and 10 percent Ukrainian. Others, maybe 80, 80, 20, uh, which made it just a little bit more challenging to communicate with folks. I thought that the two wives were there because I kept on asking myself as I read about all of this, why, why? Uh, <laughs> you, uh, how soon after you 
arrived, did you start tagging along with local journalists who were investigating stories? What were you doing at the time? Yeah, my interest in that came about one year into my Peace Corps service. Uh, the first year I'd spent most of my time working at local schools. And then the second year, I, I wanted to, to branch out a little bit and work more with some of the community organizations that were not only in uh, Artyomovsk or, or Bakhmut, but, but also in other cities in the eastern region. And so I, I set out to uh, the city of Donetsk, which is the regional capital of, of the eastern uh, uh, oblast there. And I met a couple of really interesting uh, young journalists who were uh, about my age and had founded an, an independent news website, which was something of a rarity here, uh, because at the time, at least, much of the news organizations and especially uh, television news were owned and operated by the country's powerful oligarchs. And so they, they, they rarely were independent. They typically reported on each other and it was essentially, a, a, they were essentially um, used as, as um, political tools. But these guys had this independent news outlet called Novosti Donbassa, or the News of the Donbass, uh, which I found to be mu done in, in much more of a Western style. And so they offered uh, they offered me a chance to come down there and, and lecture local journalists on um, Western style of, of reporting. And a reporter for about four years for the Peace Corps. Um, and, and then uh, also to tag along with them. And so we went and spent uh, some time uh, with a group of miners working in a legal uh, coal mine there, trying to, to scrape out a living, eke out a living in, in these mines that were uh, really not supposed to exist, uh, and, and, but, but, but really part of this um, corrupt system that had been put in place by the then president, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, and his, uh, his family, who, who helped run um, some of the legitimate businesses that used coal from these illicit mines um, to sort of pad their, their books. Now, okay, so your contract with the Peace Corps ended. Uh, did you look for a job? How did you come to be offered a job at the Kiev Post, which is an independent yeah. Ukrainian newspaper that's published in English? How many people read it? Yeah, I you know I had, I had read it as a as a Peace Corps volunteer. It was you know it was certainly one of the one of the only English language media in the country, and, and one of the only uh, uh, English language media in the world that was regularly covering Ukraine. Uh, most of the foreign correspondents that covered this part of the world were based in Moscow, and so that meant most of the reporting was was about Russia uh, rather than about Ukraine. So I I, I took a, an interest in the Kiev Post right away, and I, I thought about applying for a job uh, at, the, at the post before I finished the Peace Corps, um, but, I, but I held off. I wasn't sure that I, that I actually wanted to stay here. I sort of struggled with that uh, for, for a little while and went and actually spent the summer of 2012 after I finished the Peace Corps in, chi in China. Hmm. And I thought that I would uh, maybe make a go of doing some journalism there, but that was a very naive thing um, to think because I, I didn't have any language skills and, and there was a giant learning curve. And so I ended up applying uh, for a job as a reporter at the Kiev Post. And because they were at the time pretty desperate for a native English hmm. speaker to help edit, they uh, quickly invited me back to Ukraine to to do some work for them. And by the start of 2013, I was their new uh, reporter and news editor. And you had moved to Kiev. Now, yeah. Now, you say you were intent on reporting the truth about 
uh, Yanukovych, the uh, the pro-Russian Ukrainian president, who you said earlier was corrupt. How corrupt was he? Well, he stole billions and billions of dollars from state coffers. Um, you know, he had this system in place that really uh, meant that nothing in the state could operate without corruption. Um, he he, uh, you know, treated he treated. Uh, uh, taxpayer money, government money as his own. He uh, essentially took over a, a state compound about the size of Monaco uh, and made it his own, hmm. um, put these giant fences around it and wouldn't let anybody in. He uh, 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 created a uh, helicopter pad. He built this giant log cabin mansion um, and then a separate, a separate slightly smaller um, uh, palatial home that um, journalists would call uh, Putin's house because he had invited Vladimir Putin on a, on a visit once to come and stay in it. He had an ostrich farm and a hmm. car, uh, a, a car museum of his own. Um, it was, you know, this really extravagant, extravagant way of, of living. Um, and yet on his official state salary, I, I think he was only uh, pocketing officially uh, maybe maybe thirty to forty thousand dollars a year. And so at the Kiev Post, you know, we we uh, at the time uh, were, were one of the few independent organizations that, you know, didn't have to answer to an oligarch um, businessman uh, owner. Uh, we were able to freely report on what we wanted. We had uh, an American editor with decades of experience in, in American newspapers uh, who oversaw the operation and um, guided us, uh, you know, through through some uh, very difficult stories. And we often broke some very big stories um, about, about corruption. Uh, ministers, um, and, and this was, uh, you know, my first my first real job as a foreign correspondent. And and while there was a, a large learning curve, um, it, it really did help me to cut my teeth and and um, really to understand uh, not only how that type of journalism is done, but I think it was at that point that I really started to understand uh, Ukraine as a place and much more of of uh, the politics and government certainly. And weren't there protests when Yanukovych refused to sign a free trade agreement with the European Union? Was he being pressured by Putin or was just that the way he saw things? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. You know, he was friendly with Putin, but he he also flirted with the West and the European Union. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, I, I think there's this there's this myth that that Viktor Yanukovych was a, a Russian stooge from the very beginning. But I actually I actually believe that uh, you know while he was uh, particularly friendly with Moscow, I think he was more self interested than anything else, and saw potentially the the sign the, the signing of this association agreement with the European Union as a way to legitimize his stolen wealth and his uh, close um, oligarch buddies' um, stolen wealth as well. Um, so, you know, for a time, w many people in Ukraine and, and, and in uh, the EU believed that he would actually go and sign this deal at a summit in Vilnius in uh, November of 2013. Uh, when he didn't, it was a surprise. And uh, he decided that uh, instead of, of doing that, he would turn to, toward Russia and take a, um, a major bailout from, from Vladimir Putin, who was looking to create his own uh, union, um, uh, his own customs union with uh, former Soviet um, republics. And people here came out to the streets peacefully with signs and uh, protested his decision to turn eastward. 
50,000 people chanting, Ukraine is Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really remarkable and, and, and completely peaceful for the first several days. It, it only turned violent when Yanukovych ordered his security forces, called the Berkut, uh, meaning uh, the riot police here, to, to attack what was uh, largely a group of university students. And, and I was there that night, and it was one of the most despicable things I'd, I'd, ever, I'd ever witnessed. And my, my, first, my first time witnessing that type of violence, um, let alone state violence, and I, I, you know, I, I remember seeing blood on the, town, uh, on the city square and, and you know, young teenagers screaming, uh, photojournalists with huge gashes on their head, and these riot police just slugging away with their clubs at, at these peaceful protesters. And from that point on, it turned from a protest to a revolt and, and soon a full-on revolution. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Christopher Miller, who's written a book called The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. It's published by Bloomsbury. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Were you surprised when Volodymyr Zelensky, who's a well-known comic actor, beat Petro Poroshenko in the presidential election of 2019? You know, I was surprised when he entered the race. I think we were all shocked here. Um, I was less surprised um, by the second round of the election when he won. I think I was I was only a little bit surprised that he won by such a huge margin by winning over seventy percent of the vote. He's a but popular. He was, he's popular because he'd been on TV, right? Playing an incredibly popular. Politician. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for years he was a popular stand-up comedian. He had uh, voiced the, uh, the 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 Paddington Bear in in, in the movies that were uh, dubbed in Ukrainian over here. Um, he had also uh, the, uh, produced this extremely popular show called Servant of the People, where he plays a history teacher who uh, goes on a rant about corruption in the country and is accidentally uh, or secretly filmed by a student who posts the video online. And it goes viral, and suddenly, uh, overnight, he becomes president of Ukraine through this um, devious uh, scheme that some oligarch has whipped up. And so, um, in very much the way that he became president in this popular TV show, um, Zelensky, the man, became president of Ukraine in real life. And, uh, you know, when he announced his candidacy for president, I think that's when um, you know, people uh, really began to believe that he had a, a real shot at this um, because he was very much an outsider. Ukrainians uh, really do like voting in, uh, or well, rather voting out incumbents and voting in fresh faces. There's only been one president in Ukraine's uh, independent history since 1991 that served two terms. The rest have all been voted out. And so those of us here uh, covering politics um, really did feel like he had uh, a pretty good shot at it. And and a few months later, in spring of 2019, he was elected overwhelmingly uh, and interestingly on a, a platform of resolving the war and um, also uh, stamping out corruption. Is it your sense that people are happy with him, that he might be reelected? People were really happy with him at first. The the, the vast majority of people who voted for him, um, you know, were, were were pleased to vote out his his uh, the incumbent Petro Poroshenko. They'd grown tired of him and and liked the fact that Zelensky was inexperienced. Um, you know, not not totally unlike how some Americans felt about voting in Trump, wanting somebody with no prior po uh, political experience and an outsider, an entertainer. 
Um, and, and he was uh, he was very popular for I would think his uh, about his first year and uh, as as Ukrainian presidents do their their popularity starts to wane and by the time uh, uh, the full-scale invasion began in February of 2022 his popularity actually had plummeted from that 70 percent uh, on which he was elected to uh, just around 30 percent um, people have grown tired of his um, uh, failed efforts to to clean up corruption and and to not deliver on bringing peace uh, and ending the war that had been uh, uh, ongoing since 2014 and they wanted uh, yeah they wanted some change uh, has he rebounded at all? Yes. So, you know, since 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 Russia's uh, invasion last year, his popularity again has skyrocketed. Um, you know, he's he's, and he's become a world figure. Of course, he's he's the man of the moment. You know, he made he made this incredibly difficult decision to to not flee and to stay and fight and very famously went out in front of his presidential administration and filmed this video that said, I'm here. Yatut, I'm here. My 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 office is here. My people are here. We want you to stay with us. We're going to fight this. Um, nobody is going to roll into Kiev and, 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 and control us. And, you know, that really set the tone, I think, for for Ukraine's defense. And and still he's he is this inspiring figure uh, who is on the front lines uh, almost once a week now with his soldiers, um, you know, very much uh, a, a wartime, a wartime leader. And I don't think that, you know, anybody could have imagined him him being so. And that was one of the concerns when he was elected, that he um, may, may not do well in, in uh, as a commander in chief. But he's proven over the last year and a half in lobbying to foreign governments, particularly the, the United States, uh, to provide the billions UN? of dollars of, of weapons to Ukraine at the UN. Exactly. Yeah, it, there's there's almost nowhere he hasn't been. He pops up everywhere, whether it's in person uh, at, at the Vilnius summit uh, or or in Washington speaking to Congress or uh, on on video speaking to uh, folks at the stock market. Um, he's uh, ubiquitous these days. It does help that he speaks English. His English has gotten a lot better. That's for sure. I remember meeting him as uh, an actor before he had entered politics and he couldn't really speak English. We spoke in Russian at the time. And even then, his Ukrainian wasn't even very strong. So he's worked on both. And that's definitely helped him connect not only with his uh, people here, but also with the West. How different is Ukrainian from Russian? They're, they're, uh, they, they grow out of the same languages, don't they? The same roots? Uh, same but different. Uh, no, they're, they're, they are two separate languages. I think, um, I mean, very generally speaking, I, I, I guess you could say that Ukrainian is, is perhaps even more similar to Belarusian than, than to Russian. Um, Maybe even in many ways uh, more similar to Polish than Russian. Um, there are enough similarities that I can tell you as a non-native Russian and non-native Ukrainian speaker that I can understand uh, folks when they are speaking to me in, in either language. Um, but when it is Ukrainian, Ukrainian, if it's a more complex uh, conversation that we're having and, and not uh, uh, out and about doing daily tasks, uh, I'll struggle to understand uh, what they're saying to me because Ukrainian is is a, a, a separate language from, from Russian. Um, it's just one that I think much of the world hasn't really thought about or known about or heard of because it's been uh, suppressed or oppressed by, by, by Russia for, for decades and decades. And um, Part you know, of the Ukraine, Soviet Union. Uh, 
a language yes exactly part of part of uh, when it was part of the Soviet Union um, you know Vladimir Lenin didn't didn't believe that Ukrainians in Ukraine was a real place you know and that's part of Putin's message now that Ukraine was a place that was uh, contrived and created by Vladimir Lenin that it didn't exist before the Soviet Union that Ukrainians are Russians who've lost their way and that they're not a real people, that they don't have their own culture and they don't have their own language. And of course, that's false. Well, and, and the, the, the Russia funny. started in Kiev, didn't it? Yeah, the birthplace of, of, of Russia and the birthplace of Ukraine um, uh, and Slavic culture is right here where I'm speaking to you from, in Kiev. Um, this is where Kievan Rus uh, was born in the in the in the late 1900s, and um, you know the Ukrainians like to remind the Russians that by saying that uh, when when Kiev and Rus was founded here in Kiev, Moscow was still a forest. There wasn't anything developed there yet. Now you uh, split your time between Kiev and Brooklyn, <laughs> but we're talking to you from Kiev. What what time is it right now? It's a long commute. Uh, it's eight almost 8:30 p.m. in Kiev. Uh, the tonight hour to eight tonight. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, you've traveled all over Ukraine to the covered steppe of the Donbass in the Far East, the Euromaidan Revolution Camp in Kiev, the shores of the Black Sea in Crimea, to battlefields in places like Busha, Bakhmut, and bombed-out Mariupol. Did you go all of, the, all of those places on assignments? Yeah, I've been to many of those places on assignments and other places, uh, well, and some of them also before the war, um, just just to travel and, and to get a, a better sense of the country and its people. Uh, before before the war began in, in 2014, when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, I had more than two years to really just set out and explore Ukraine. And I spent a lot of time on, on trains. I think I counted more than 100 um, just in the first two years that I was here, uh, that took me from uh, Donetsk to Crimea, Odessa, Kiev, uh, Lviv. So that would be you know, north, south, east, west, um, mountains, forests, plains. Um, I've very, been yeah, very different. Of, very different look, like the United yeah, States. Yeah, you know the the really great thing about Ukraine is is that in being as big as it is, and also having a, a sea um, a border. Um, you know, you, you get a lot of different uh, uh, climates and, and the geography changes uh, from from region to region. So where I lived in in Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine, you get these really wide, open, sprawling steppes that are covered in these beautiful fields of golden sunflowers. Um, and this time of year right now, uh, they're all blooming. And it's just absolutely stunning. Um, and if it, if it weren't for the war, um, it would be just this really uh, peaceful, beautiful place to um, uh, ride your bike through, like I used to do. Um, I, I used to crisscross that whole eastern uh, steppe on my on my bicycle. Um, you know, that region is also um, covered in um, what they call terracon or, or uh, slag heaps from the mine from the mine waste. Um, many of them are now decades old, and so they've been covered with um, shrubbery and trees, and, and they look a bit like mountains. And so a lot of folks out there joke that they're the, uh, the Carpathians of the East. Um, uh, and the Carpathians, of course, are the actual beautiful, really beautiful, stunning mountains in western Ukraine, um, where I've also spent some time. And uh, uh, it's just a, a really stunning, stunning, um, stunning place. Well, important years in the history of Ukraine, because uh, while you've been working there, you've witnessed some of the country's most traumatic and transformative recent events, the 2013 Euromaidan 
protest movement, Russia's annexation of Crimea, the war between Ukraine and Russia in Donetsk in 2014, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, and the war that's followed that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I, um, certainly, I certainly didn't set out to uh, to cover any of those. Um, you know, I, I ended up being here when they when they all happened, when they when they began, when when the revolution um, was sparked by the violence that we mentioned earlier. Um, you know, when when Russian uh, when when Russian troops rolled into Crimea after Ukraine's pro-Russian president was was ousted in February of 2014, uh, and then also when the war broke out in eastern Ukraine, where I used to live. It, you know, it, it made sense for me to go back and cover it. I knew the geography. I knew the people. I knew I actually knew a lot of Ukrainians who were then uh, at that point um, taking up arms and fighting on on both sides. Uh, and it, it was, you know, I, I guess I was I, I don't like to use the word, you know, fortunate or lucky, but it, it was um I was certainly in the right place at the right time uh, as a journalist to cover these things, and, and not just as somebody who was uh, parachuting in from, from, say, another war zone or a uh, conflict-ridden country, but in a place that I knew I knew very deeply because I, you know, I'd, I'd never set out to actually be a war correspondent, and I still don't use that term in describing myself. I, I'm, I'm very much a reporter uh, or a writer. I take uh, some some fairly decent photos from time to time, but I was very happy writing about politics and uh, uh, culture here, and and then all of these, you know, uh, I mean, massive um, events um, unfolded, and I, I learned one day at a time how to cover them, how to keep myself safe, how to keep my fellow uh, journalists uh, working alongside me safe, um, you know, how to be a reporter in wartime rather than be a war correspondent. But can it be confusing at times? Some of these places have had a number of different names over the years. Donetsk has been Alexandrovka, Yuzivka, mm-hmm. Stalin, and Stalino. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, they haven't the been in place. all of those in my lifetime, though. So I've got the benefit of, of knowing Donetsk as just Donetsk and, and studying the rest of them as, uh, as in my, in my uh, personal time uh, as someone who's interested in their history. Um, but, you know, yeah, more recently, uh, since Ukraine set on this path of decommunization in 2016, I mean, really since uh, about, uh, well, since, since uh, its, its independence in 1991, but really um, uh, fast um, uh, uh, imposing these, these new decommunization laws and, and um, pushing ahead with them after 2016, a lot of places have changed names. Streets have changed names. That's been maybe one of the most confusing things is, is saying, uh, you know, we, we need to travel down this road or the only place to get to this area of the front line or that checkpoint is to go down this road and somebody else will know it by its old name and I'll know it by its new name. Um, so it can be confusing at times, but I, I do think I have developed an, a knack for actually remembering uh, the history of, of a lot of really, even really small off uh, the beaten path places here. And maybe that's just because before the war began, I had a lot of time on my hands, especially in my Peace Corps time here. And there wasn't much else to do but to explore and to read and to talk to people. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org.
Well, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Christopher Miller. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, his book, The War Came to Us. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 or more donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much and return now to Christopher Miller to discuss his um, book, The War Came to Us, The Life, Life and Death in Ukraine from Bloomsbury. Now, Crimea is uh, something that has come up a bit in our conversation. Uh, had Nikita Khrushchev given Crimea to Ukraine in 1954 as a goodwill gesture? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Khrushchev uh, essentially gifted Crimea to Ukraine, and it was a goodwill gesture. And at, certainly at the time, there was you know no no thinking that the Soviet Union was going to collapse. Um, you know, just a few decades later, uh, you know the the idea was that. Uh, nothing in, really would change in, in in practice that it would continue to be a part of the Soviet Union, um, and so you know many people at, at the fall of the Soviet Union um, f felt, at least in Russia, that it would remain a part of Russia rather than Ukraine. But because it had been gifted to Ukraine and uh, formally was a part of um, Soviet Ukraine, it stayed with independent Ukraine after the collapse, and so um, you know that that was one reason. Reason uh, that uh, well, one justification that Putin made uh, for for uh, invading and annexing Crimea was that it needed to be returned um, to its uh, historical um, uh, uh, place, uh, which which he he believes is Russia. But of course, it was even before it was part of Russia or Ukraine or the Soviet Union. It was uh, ruled by by by. Uh, Tatars and, and, and other civilizations even before that. Um, many people have conquered Crimea. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I think it's, it's very much a, a, difficult, uh, a, a difficult place when thinking about where exactly um, it, it belongs historically. But, but there is no doubt that at least under you know, international law currently, it's very much a part of Ukraine. And, and Ukraine is you know, very focused on, on returning not only the, the mainland um, uh, of its country that is under Russian occupation right now, but, but also all of Crimea, which has been occupied since 2014. And you were in Ukraine when Vladimir Putin took it back in 2014. How did the locals react to that? And what about people across Ukraine, which is a very large country with a number of different languages. Yeah, I was actually in Crimea when the Russian soldiers without insignia uh, slipped off of their naval base and uh, spilled into the cities of Sevastopol and Simferopol and Bakhchysarai and all these other um, cities on the Crimean Peninsula and and took over essentially without firing a shot. Even um, you know the the Ukrainian military was shocked. They they were not ready for this. Um, they they had been uh, essentially taken apart over over decades. Very little money was put into the Ukrainian military. They never thought that they would have to fight a war. 
um, again, uh, let alone with their neighbor, uh, Russia. And so um, they, they were caught very much off guard by these Russian soldiers who um, actually w- were there under a contract that had been signed and agreed by, by Kiev and Moscow um, that said that up to 25,000 uh, Russian soldiers could be there as part of Russia's Black Sea fleet in, in Sevastopol. And so they were already there, making the invasion uh, very, very easy for them, which is why uh, we woke up one morning and and they were already uh, storming parliament and other local government buildings and had taken over the peninsula essentially by sundown on the first day. And so when I arrived, these 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 men who were without insignia and and not speaking um, were, were were everywhere. They were posing for photographs. Uh, many of the people in Crimea welcomed them. There, there's, you know, it's no secret that there are many people in Crimea with a, a strong affinity for Moscow and felt as though life under Russian rule would be better. Uh, pensioners, in particular, retirees who thought that they would get uh, better pensions under Russian rule uh, than they than they were getting under Ukrainian rule. Has that happened? <laughs> No, no, it didn't happen. I think, you know, the, the people of, of, of Crimea who uh, supported Russia's annexation um, have have many of them have now found that they were lied to and things didn't work out as well as they had hoped. And in fact, the peninsula has largely been cut off from uh, the global economy. Credit cards don't work there. Um, there's there's uh, special credit cards uh, that you have to use um, for, for the first year or, or two. It was most, mostly a cash economy. Uh, travel to Ukraine to visit relatives was almost impossible. Hmm. Um, even traveling to Russia was very difficult because there was no there was no mainland route. Um, you had to take a ferry at that time before Russia erected this illegal Crimea bridge that now has been in the news because the Ukrainians have struck it with missiles. Um, yeah, no, it was it was uh, it, it did not go according to plan uh, for for many people. And you also witnessed a battle between Ukrainian soldiers and Russian separatists for Donetsk airport in 2014. Was that a yeah. major scoop for you? I, I think, well, you know, everybody, I think many journalists were out in Donetsk in eastern Ukraine at the time uh, covering what what was certainly uh, shaping up to be a, a real war. Uh, but at, at the time, uh, there had been some small skirmishes, and this airport battle really marked the start of the war in eastern Ukraine. It was, it was violence on a scale that I had not witnessed ever before. Uh, I was with a, a trailing a, a group of Russians. Russian fighters who had uh, light and and, and uh, medium weight um, uh, weaponry. They were carrying anti tank missiles and uh, rocket propelled grenades. They had Kalashnikov rifles and uh, large caliber machine guns. And the Ukrainians were trying to fight them back from uh, the airport terminal using attack helicopters and uh, other similar weapons of their own. And it was uh, a real a real bloodbath. And there were dozens of people who who, who were injured and killed and uh, civilians as well some some nearby who were killed by stray bullets it was uh, it was it was really terrible and and um, I think that that was the day that really marked the the start of of the of, of the war uh, in, in 2014 and you know that that would continue on uh, much in a similar way if, if not well and, and on many days on many occasions it would get much much worse before there was ever um, this uh, uh, ceasefire uh, in, in February of 2015. Should we have been aware that the seeds of Russia's war against Ukraine in the West had been sown more than a decade earlier? 
Yeah, I think so. You know, there, there's definitely an argument to be made that the West was just not not paying close enough attention. Uh, you know, Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, and I think, especially here among Ukrainians, um, there are many people who believe that that um, should have really set off alarms for for leaders in the West, especially those in in, in NATO and um, the United States. Uh, that Russia that Russia had designs on on many former Soviet republics. Um, that Georgia was uh, perhaps just a, a a testing ground, and that Ukraine could very well be next. Um, and certainly, you know, there were there were signs that were either missed or or, or ignored. And when Crimea happened, I think that really caught a lot of people off guard. And as I mentioned in my book, when, it, when, when Russian soldiers showed up in Crimea, the acting Ukrainian president, um, Alexander Turchinov, uh, made a call to, to Washington to speak with the Obama administration and the president himself. And he recounted to me how uh, the White House told him to stand down, not, not to uh, respond, because they didn't know what would happen, and they feared that that would unleash a greater uh, Russian military fury. My guest today is Christopher Miller, who's written a book called The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine, published by Bloomsbury. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. How dangerous was this for you? After the war broke out, didn't you travel under enemy fire to the, the cities of Mariupol and Bakhmut? And didn't you have to hide in the basements of damaged buildings during drone attacks? Yeah, um, you know, everything everything is done with having made some some calculations. There are risks that, as a journalist, I think are I, I, I need to be willing to take, um, but they are calculated risks. Um, you know, still nothing is is 100 percent safe. And with the weaponry that's being used on the battlefields out here, um, our artillery systems, for example, uh, that that are rather indiscriminate, uh, you, know, you never know where a shell is going to 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 come exploding down. And oftentimes that uh, does happen uh, in, in, in places that um, are, are where you know are, that are a little too close for for comfort, and I've I've been caught in some artillery attacks, and it's a deeply unpleasant uh, experience. Uh, but we do run to uh, shelters when we can find them, basements, uh, sometimes uh, vegetable cellars underground, uh, anywhere really to get out of the way of of incoming fire. Um, but sometimes you, you can't, and you just simply need to drop to the ground, lay flat wait it out and uh, cross your fingers. Uh, but, but these are calculations that I make, um, that other correspondents make as well, um, in order to get to these places where we can interview people, uh, civilians caught in the crossfire, soldiers who are uh, defending their country, um, you know, in order to tell the stories of this. Well, didn't a man tell you he was going to kill you unless you confessed to being an American spy? That happened on several occasions, uh, unfortunately. Yes, um, you know, I think in in at least in at least his case, I, I, I'm I, I'm I'm glad that obviously that did not happen. Um, but I, I think it was an intimidation um, uh, tactic. You know, it was a way to try to get me to to flinch and to turn around and and not uh, enter the uh, Russian occupied city that I was trying to enter. Um, and in hopes that I would just uh, leave and, and not go in and talk to people. Um, this this is a war of of, of, of bullets, um, but it's also a war of, of information. And 
the the Russians really do not want Western journalists to be in territories under their control, to tell stories from those places, to talk to their soldiers, to talk to civilians under their occupation, um, because we know what's happening there um, uh, from the few people that uh, we have managed to speak to and, and those that have uh, who, who have escaped, who have recounted um, stories of torture and horrific abuse and, and, and murder. Uh, we have seen after uh, Ukraine liberates towns and cities, um, the mass graves uh, that are left behind. And it, it's, it, it's, it's terrible. So I, you know, I, I have been told that um, more than once, as I said, but, you know, I think again, it's, it's just a matter of, of trying to, to gauge, you know, whether the person is serious or not, uh, or if this is, if this really is a threat or if it's if, uh, simply an attempt at uh, intimidating a journalist so that they won't be able to tell this story. But you've also interviewed many of the key figures in this story. Did it help or hinder that you were an American? You know, I, I do think uh, as, as an American, uh, you know, it, it provides me a sort of distance, um, you know, in a way uh, that uh, a Russian journalist or a Ukrainian journalist uh, won't won't have necessarily in in covering this, um, even as somebody who's you know now deeply tied to this country and has spent a lot of time here and seen uh, friends grow up and get married and and build lives uh, for themselves here uh, and and considers this you know his second home. I, I, you know I, I think I'm still. Uh, you know, just a, I have a little bit of distance between between me and the story, and and I think that has um, helped at times to uh, be able to tell a more a more complex story. Um, certainly, to get access to people and the sides of this war that aren't available to uh, Ukrainian journalists or Russian journalists. Uh, certainly now it's impossible for, for either of them to uh, come over and, and, and report on either side. Um, it's more difficult. It's difficult, obviously, for, for Americans to report on the Russian side now. And we have a colleague who's been uh, jailed in Russia for reporting over there. Um, but still, I think being a foreign correspondent, um, uh, you know, has has its benefits. That said, I, I would also point out that there are, um, you know, challenges as well. Uh, one being the language issue, which I don't have a, a huge problem with at the moment, but, um, you know, I'm still not a, a fluent uh, Russian and certainly not a fluent Ukrainian speaker. Um, but but also there's just an inherent knowledge um, if you're a Ukrainian that that goes a long way to being able to um, comprehend what is happening. Donald Trump's legal issues have been dominating the news recently in this country. Uh, he only appears at the end of your book in in relation to the Hunter Biden story. Was he somebody who uh, was discussed much while you were there? Yeah, I, I covered, uh, you know, Trump Trump has a way of, of sucking up all of the oxygen in the room. And I, I made a point not to discuss him and, and the impact that he's had over here in the scandal in 2019 when he threatened to withhold crucial military aid unless President Zelensky opened a, a criminal investigation into um, then-candidate uh, Joe Biden. I heard Just he because- was insisting on all of his food being made with Putinesca. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, but, yeah... Um, you know, I, I didn't want this to, to be a book about Trump, and and I didn't want it to be a book 
that that focused much on um, global politics and 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 the foreign politicians who are playing major roles um, in in this. I really wanted it to be a book. Um, that was was written from ground level that gave you know great insight into the place and the people and the culture and really just you know shared these stories of of uh, incredible uh, people doing doing things that are just extraordinary and I felt that uh, you know focusing a little uh, focusing more on 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 Trump and and the scandal of a few years back would would maybe uh, be a dis- more of a distraction um, than uh, a, a benefit in this book and you couldn't have known when you were writing the book that Russia would then uh, do everything possible to end Ukrainian grain exports but the whole world is affected by that is that something that's being discussed in Ukraine Absolutely, it's one of the major concerns of of, of Kiev, of President Zelensky, uh, his foreign minister Dmitry Kuleba is reaching out now to the global south, to Asian countries, um, to try to get them to uh, essentially side with Ukraine and and use whatever leverage they have against Russia to try to get it to come back uh, to this um, uh, grain deal that was brokered by the United Nations to export grain from Ukrainian ports. Uh, since Russia backed out of this deal a couple of weeks ago, it has spent um, uh, countless. Um, uh, well, let's see. It's it's it, it, it hit first um, the uh, seaports in Odessa. I believe five five nights in a row, destroying grain elevators and uh, infrastructure at the ports. Uh, just yesterday. Uh, or this week, it uh, Russian missiles uh, or drones rather struck another port just a few hundred um, feet from the Romanian border, uh, really close to EU and, and NATO territory. Uh, and so it's backed out of this deal. It's destroying all of this infrastructure to export, uh, used to export grain, and and that's going to have uh, a devastating effect on food supplies uh, across the world. Um, but of course, this is one of the tactics that Russia is employing. Um, now, because it hasn't had military success on the battlefield, the battlefield here, and he has to be very concerned about accidentally crossing over into NATO territory, um, the area is surrounded by members of NATO now. Um, For sure, are you concerned that we might wind up seeing something the equivalent of a, of a world war coming out of all of this? I mean that that is. That that remains a concern, not not only of mine, um, certainly of uh, people with a lot more power than myself. Um, but I think when you see a drone strike on, you know, uh, on one side of a, of a river that you could essentially swim across, mm. um, you know, and and that being the difference between. Um, a NATO Article 5, which would mean that the military bloc has to respond militarily um, and, uh, and, 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 and not, um, then, yeah, I mean, it just, it feels like we're, we're in a really, really dangerous moment and, and it could get a lot worse uh, yet. And, and I, I really hope that it doesn't, but um, you know, I think Vladimir Putin is backed into a corner. Uh, he's not had a military that's performed very well on the battlefield. They haven't had a military success really besides occupying Bakhmut, but only after 10 months of, of destroying the city. Should we uh, be surprised? Because we always day. thought that Russia was the one of the most powerful countries in the world. 
Yeah, I mean, certainly that was the concern of, of Washington and, and, and Brussels and um, just about every other Western nation ahead of the full-scale invasion in February of 2022. That's why the warnings were, um, you know, to, to President Zelensky and the Ukrainians, you need to you need to prepare, you need to do everything you can now. Um, if there's any way you can speak to the Kremlin and negotiate um, some kind of deal to stop them from doing this, you should, uh, because everybody in the world believed that the Russian military was the second most powerful uh, military uh, it, there, there was. Um, and, and I think, you know, the Russians certainly believe that, and and so much so that they were very unprepared uh, for for uh, this this invasion. Um, instead, they they rolled across the border ra rather easy, but then very quickly uh, made mistake after mistake after mistake against uh, a country with a much, much smaller military, and at the time, one that was not armed with the billions and billions of dollars of Western weaponry that it now is. Thank you so much for being on our show. Since 2022, uh, Christopher Miller has been the lead correspondent in Ukraine for the Financial Times. Uh, previously, he uh, worked as a world and national security reporter for Politico, uh, as a senior world correspondent for BuzzFeed News, and a correspondent for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in Kiev. His book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine is published by Bloomsbury. And I thank you so much for being on our show today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed by a lot, one Million Plays is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI. We're Focus going through a radio. rough time ourselves, and um, we're hoping that you'll make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with to help us get through these rough times. Um, do that by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number to WBAI.org. We need help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The War Came to Us by Christopher Miller. So make that call right now, 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for 10 $15, $20, $25 a month, as long as you wish. Um, and it allows us to plan for the future, and we'll say thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Please do it. We're the only station in the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Your contribution is tax-deductible. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest, Robert L. Oaken, will discuss Silent Voices, his updated book about people with mental disorders on the street. We'll see you then.